Welcome back to Brainwaves, a podcast about big ideas produced at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Paul Bake. This week, in honor of the Academy Awards coming up, we'll look at why movies matter and their impact on society and the environment. And we'll revisit the debate on superhero movies and whether they're a menace to filmmaking. If you have a big idea you'd like us to explore or you want to give us your thoughts on our show, you can now email us at brainwaves at colorado.edu. Plenty of people in Hollywood talk a big game on social issues, but do they walk the walk, so to speak? Ricky Gervais had a field day with that topic at the Golden Globes. Apple roared into the, the TV game with a morning show, a superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? While film stars do plenty of work for causes like clean water, malaria, and so on, there's a hidden aspect to all of this you might not know about. Movies, even ones that are about caring for the planet, can be surprisingly bad for the environment. Brainwave's executive producer, Andrew Sorensen, has that story. Going back to the earliest days of Hollywood, there is a very dirty secret. Roll the film. The counter-narrative, which is pretty much buried underneath the sheen and the excess and the bright lights of, of, of Hollywood films, is all of the resources and the labor that goes into these films. That's Hunter Vaughn. He's an environmental media scholar and author of a new book, Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret. Through backlot tours and interviews with executives, he pulled back the curtain on the environmental impact of film. Singing in the rain. Singing in the rain was actually where this whole project started. It's funny, it's entertaining. A lot has been written about how that movie was made. Loads of articles, books. Uh, none of them actually talk about the water. No one discusses the water used. No one discusses the week that it took to rehearse the scene with the water running constantly on this back lot at MGM. During that week, the filmmakers put a serious strain on LA's water. Issues like that have only gotten worse as movies get bigger and flashier. Titanic uh, was filmed in Mexico, and what they were doing was they were siphoning water in from the ocean, and then it was going through the film production, and then it was trickling out into the surrounding waterways. If you remember that movie, water's a pretty big part. It's the Titanic. In a predictable climax, the boat crashes into an iceberg and sinks and the impact it had was to decimate a sea urchin population while also completely ruining the livelihood of a local fishing community. Another movie he explores in the book, The Beach, also starring Leonardo DiCaprio. This one is about, you guessed it, a beach. Uh, and what they were doing at the beach is they were literally removing or displacing uh, particular plants in, in order to get the aesthetic shots that they wanted. They basically ruined a natural monsoon barrier, but they did make it look good, and tourists followed. The presence of tourists, the oversaturation of tourists, started to destroy all of the coral reef system around there, to the point where I believe last year they actually shut off all tourism. You Jake Sully? Then there was Avatar, 
which Vaughn says marketed itself as fully digital, which was supposed to be greener. It involves lots of analog production, such as the production of real costumes, the production of real sets. A lot of this was done so that they could reproduce or theorize, hypothesize, what garments would look like on the planet of Pandora. And at the end of the production, all of that was basically waste. On top of that, computer-generated imagery can take a lot of computer power. It uses electricity, air conditioning to keep the computers cool, and can ultimately be bad for the environment. Vaughn says he does enjoy movies and going to the movies, but he says environmentally conscious moviegoers should probably consider spending their money on films that are a little less flashy and a little less wasteful in their production. For Brainwaves, I'm Andrew Sorensen. Yes, the film industry can harm the environment, but it can also use its powers for good. That's according to Aaron Espley, an assistant professor in the College of Media, Communication, and Information at CU Boulder. She's also a filmmaker who says the medium can raise awareness. Uh, we heard just now about the serious and often hidden toll that the movie industry can take on the environment. But can the opposite also be true? Can film shed light on environmental issues like climate change or the wildfires that are devastating Australia? Absolutely, they can. The question is how and and how people have access to these films. I think many people think when they think about environmental films, they might think of someone like David Attenborough. Obviously, his work has been has been quite powerful and has has even adjusted to our reaction against anthropomorphizing of animals, etc. But I think we're now looking for for new ways of telling telling these climate stories, which will only continue to grow in number and severity. And what we're what we really need is a sensitivity to telling those stories and diversity of telling those stories. Many people will know about the more mainstream movies that address environmental concerns and Inconvenient Truth or Before the Flood, which was produced by Leonardo DiCaprio. Have these been effective at raising awareness of these issues? You know, there's not as much empirical data on this, actually, as I would hope. We don't know. Uh, I think we can definitively say that more people are making films about environmental issues. But what film has always been good at is responding to the times. And so when we look at the history of cinema, we look at a history of our concerns, whether that was the Cold War and thinking about um, science fiction films going to space as a way of working through some of the angst around that. Uh, and, and I think we're seeing increasing numbers of films that are responding sometimes in space as well, but uh, some taking us into places that can allow us to cope with some of these environmental shifts and changes to our societies that are, for a lot of people, bringing out a lot of anxiety and fear as well. Let's talk about some more current films. This year, Honeyland was nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. It follows the story of a traditional beekeeper in Macedonia. How did this film examine the relationship between humans and nature? Honeyland is a beautiful, fantastic film. It's a very unique film in that it, it blends fiction and documentary. We, we see and follow a woman who's a beekeeper, who's been a beekeeper for, for many decades, and um, follow a, a shift that happens uh, in the course of, of her life and in the course of her community. And 
the way that the filmmakers capture this is pretty interesting because they ended up camping and living on site with her at this very remote village without electricity. So almost all of the film is shot in natural light. And so at one level, the film itself is in a different conversation with nature already because of that form of filmmaking. And then on top of that, the filmmakers were very savvy about creating um, situations. And and I, I'm careful in using that terminology because they indeed did craft certain um, situations and and planned cert- for certain things to happen. And as it as the story unfolds, we actually see things occur that seem to mirror the larger planetary concerns that we're having. Let's talk about your own work. You're a prolific director. How are you using film to take a close look at the natural world? Right now I'm working on a film about cyanobacteria with a professor on campus, Dr. Jeffrey Cameron, in biochemistry. And what attracted me to his research is that he's thinking about cyanobacteria as real game changers in terms of our climate. They created our climate. They actually were what converted our atmosphere into one that was habitable by by humans and other other animals as we know it. They produced the oxygen that we needed in the great oxygenation event. And so they created our current environment and they also have the capacity to change it because they are capable of sequestering carbon dioxide in great quantities. So I'm fascinated with these creatures. The Cameron Laboratory has set up a camera that can actually capture uh, live growth of cells on an individual level. And this creates really beautiful images and the fluorescence of it can be controlled. Uh, The light that is being fed, literally fed to these bacteria can be manipulated. And as a filmmaker, I can actually move a joystick to control where the camera points and create my frame. So this is kind of a beautiful situation for a filmmaker to have that level of control. But on, a, on another perspective, I don't think enough cinema looks at the at the smaller things. And I think we need a diversity of, of imagery to really be telling some of these increasingly complex stories about our, our changing environment. And this is one that I don't think many other people are, are telling. Erin Espoli, thank you very much for joining us today on Brainwaves. Thank you so much for having me. Erin Espoli is an assistant professor in the College of Media, Communication, and Information at CU Boulder and teaches in the departments of Cinema Studies and Critical Media Practices. Of the top 10 movies at the box office in 2019, four were superhero movies or superhero spin-offs. The latest Avengers movies, whose theme you just heard, led the pack. It had more than $850 million in sales, according to the website Box Office Pro. That's got some people in Hollywood reeling. Again, Ricky Gervais. Martin Scorsese, the greatest living director, made the news for his controversial comments about the Marvel franchise. He said they're not real cinema, and they remind him of theme parks. I agree. That said... $850 million says a lot in this ongoing debate. Cole Hemstreet sorts out that question. Marvel, hero or villain? Revisiting two conversations we had last summer. 
For all of the debate around whether superhero movies are ruining cinema, it is still a debate. Rick Stevens is an associate professor of media studies at CU Boulder. He breaks down why these movies are so darn popular. This current rise of the superheroes has to do with technology, it has to do with the zeitgeist of the moment, but basically it's an open platform where we take superheroes as this kind of moralistic storytelling that happens with spandex and bright colors, you know, that there's something about that comic book medium that over the last almost century has kind of focused um, the storytelling into these very black and white, but red and blue and yellow, you know, kind of, of really strong contrast, let you really get to these really sharp and distinct um, understandings. And for comic books in the print world, that's worked for a long time. But now the technology is allowing us to bring some of that to the screen. And it's kind of rejuvenated the platform for summer blockbusters. We used to have action movies, crime movies, suspense, and now we can do those things within the context of a superhero movie, and it combines together lots of audiences at the same time. Basically, it's an admittedly one-size-fits-all approach. We also talked to Ernesto Acevedo Munoz, a film professor at CU Boulder, who seems to buy into the hype a little bit less. Well, the demands of the market have become more and more narrow, and Summer movies have the necessity to appeal to the widest possible audience, which unfortunately means the lowest common denominator. And uh, what I've been referring to in my classes as the, the moronization of American cinema. Did you catch that? The moronization of American cinema. Acevedo Munoz blames the PG-13 rating, first introduced in 1984. It's not that these movies are automatically bad, it's that so many are catering to the people who are most likely to go see PG-13 movies. But Stevens believes that's kind of what makes superhero movies great. Hollywood is using a common platform to elevate lots of different kinds of stories, and even social issues. When the widest possible audience, particularly in summertime, is composed of suburban white boys and uh, the PG the thirteen number in particular, you know, no no offense meant, but uh, thirteen year old suburban white boys are not a very sophisticated audience, and so there can't be anything that is even slightly challenging to a large portion of the audience who doesn't know anything about the movies, who are not interested in learning anything about the movies and are not interested in being challenged intellectually. And this is why this, you have the same movies every summer over and over again. But Stevens believes that's kind of what makes superhero movies great. Hollywood is using a common platform to elevate lots of different kinds of stories and even social issues. Marvel in particular, Marvel Studios, has been very good about that. Once they built up to their kind of Avengers moment in, in 2012, after that, they diversified the genre um, in that regard. You know, Captain America um, Winter Soldier comes out, and it's a spy thriller. You know, you get Iron Man, which is talking about future technology trends and, and thinking about, you know, the military-industrial complex, you know, in, in particular ways. You get Ant-Man, which is a kind of a comedy heist film kind of a thing. It's like any of the genres that we have in classic Hollywood cinema can now be remixed into the superhero formula if you pick the right character and if you set up the right director and you set up the right formula. So suddenly you've got this Marvel library offering and it's, and it's more diverse than just, hey, here are superheroes and we're going to follow, you know, kind of the standard superhero hero's journey formula. 
But that's also exactly why Acevedo Munoz doesn't like the superhero trend. Look around at the, the repetitive output and, and patterns which reduce the, the options of the cinema going public to superheroes, uh, trolls, and magical creatures and, and talking animals. How many talking animals movies do we need to have in a single year? And how can you tell apart any of the Avengers movies or the rest of the Marvel Universe for that matter with you know the very rare exception of something like Black Panther? which is, by definition, it's the exception to the rule, by definition. Whether you enjoy these films like Stevens or want something more out of cinema like Munoz, the debate is probably going to rage on. Disney has already announced nearly 20 upcoming titles under their Marvel tag. For Brainwaves, I'm Cole Hemstreet. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves. I'm Paul Bake. Next week, we'll look at pets and what science says about their relationship with humans. Again, if you have a big idea you'd like to hear us explore, or if you want to learn more about a show we've already done, send us an email at brainwaves at colorado.edu. You can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Cole Hemstreet, Andrew Sorensen, and I produced today's episode. A shout out to our former producer and co-founder, Dirk Martin. He retired in December. Dirk, you owe us lunch for every beach pic you send. That's it for this week. We'll catch you next time on Brainwaves.